Welcome to the official OCPHA podcast journey series where we interview our local Orange County healthcare professionals about their professional journey into their specialized fields. My name is Tony and I'll be your host this week and I'm joined by our special guest, uh, Dr. Sylvia Moore. All right. Thank you, Sylvia, for taking your time to be a guest on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Great. So um, I guess we can get started. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, I was born in Orange County. Uh, uh, my uh, parents were uh, from Mexico. They were both immigrants. We came to this country very early in their lives. My mother at about six months and my dad at about five years. And um, I uh, was born and raised in Santa Ana. My dad had pharmacies in downtown Santa Ana, so I began, began working at a pharmacy at a very early age. I was 14 when I had my first job, and uh, I worked in the front counter uh, selling magazines and candy and that sort of thing. What made you decide to go into the, the field of pharmacy? Was it because of your experience or? Yeah, I think partially. I, my dad was really a great role model. You know, he can't, he was, you know, had, you know, it was, it was the depression when he went to school. He graduated from USC in 1936. He paid his own way. He rode the streetcar from Santa Ana every day. Um, uh, he had, he worked full time. He worked 60 hours. He, he went to school and worked 60 hours a week. Wow. Uh, as a clerk for, uh, for the McCoy, uh, McCoy drugstore chain that was a cha- uh, 12 store chain in Orange County at that time. Um, he lay, uh, he graduated in 1936. He, uh, as, and became a staff pharmacist and later, uh, a store manager and then bought one of the stores from Mr. McCoy and, uh, ended up owning, uh, two, two stores in downtown Santa Ana. Wow. That's, uh, so, quite a journey. Uh, yeah, it is. And, you know, starting with, with, uh, pretty much nothing. So he, uh, made, he, uh, I, I was very proud of him. He, he wanted, his dream actually was to be a doctor. So he, he, I was the older child. So he kept saying, yeah, I want you to go to med school. I want you to go to med school. So, um, I started in pre-med at Stanford and realized very soon that I didn't have a passion for medicine and I enjoyed being a pharmacist. So I switched to USC School of Pharmacy after my sophomore year. Wow. Okay. So, um, so then after you finished graduating, what kind of like different fields of pharmacy were you um, specializing in? Like, did you straight off find like a niche or did it take some time? Well, it, it, I realized very soon after I graduated that I wasn't really equipped to deal with patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't, school didn't teach me that. So, uh, but um, I had my dad, uh, I opened the pharmacy at eight in the morning and my dad came in around noon and closed at nine. So I, I watched him very carefully. And mm-hmm. once I was a pharmacist and then after, um, uh, three, uh, he opened his second pharmacy after I'd been out of school for two years and then I managed that one. And that was learning experience because, um, although I had lot, learned Spanish as a child, I hadn't used it. Mm-hmm. Um, but our, the pharmacy was called Pan American Pharmacy. So I would say 80% or more of our patients were Spanish speaking mm-hmm. and uh, some of them didn't understand English at all. So, um, with the patient's help and with some patients, I was able to get fluent in Spanish for counseling patients in pharmacy, mm-hmm. and I ran that pharmacy for about eight years. Oh, wow. Okay. So then after after working as a pharmacist um, for eight years at, at that store, then what did you do after that? Um, I was I had the opportunity to open a pharmacy in Newport Beach. Mariner Savings and Loan was building two medical buildings uh, right across the street from the whole hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, was able to... Uh, uh, was able to get into the pharmacy. We called it Mariner's Pharmacy, mm-hmm. and uh, I opened that in 1975. Worked there, and I was I owned that pharmacy for 20 years, and that was a great experience too. 
uh, a lot of lessons. I I learned the importance of um, location mm-hmm. uh, because for the first five years uh, I was in the first building and I faced the parking lot and I struggled. I never I never quite make ends meet. Um, but my niece said that I had the uh, I had first choice for the second building and the second building faced the highway, the uh, superior. And so I moved to the pharmacy uh, in 1980 to the new location, and within a month or two, I was profitable. So location is very important. Yeah, and you know, those kind of things, you don't really know or learn about it in school until you experience it yourself. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I didn't realize that not facing the street would make such a big difference because, you know, there were doctors were, the building was full of doctors, but it didn't make any difference. Nobody could see me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. The visibility. Out of the building, yeah, the visibility was uh, increased by a hundred folds when I moved into the building. And then, so when you had that pharmacy, what kind of, um, I guess, what kind of services did you provide? Did it change uh, a lot over had, the years? Yeah, it, we, well, the thing is, I didn't change very much, but the whole, I think, aspect of community pharmacy changed. We had free delivery during that time. The uh, PBM cards came in, mm-hmm. so, so I. The prices and the, and there weren't a lot of really high priced drugs, so I could make a really decent living by uh, dispensing them for around ten or twelve dollars. Mm-hmm. What happened was when our PBM cards came in, those prescriptions I didn't make a profit on them anymore, mm-hmm. and that was not as bad as it is now. It was like you think I cost plus two fifty, two dollars and fifty cents. I was used to doubling my money on my prescriptions okay. without being expensive. You know, we mm-hmm. still. It was still uh, very economical for the patient. So the PDM cards came in around 1990, and it was very, and that was the first one was the PCS card. Mm-hmm. I was by that time I was making most of my profit in the cosmetic department. Oh wow! I had a full line of cosmetics, and my daughter had graduated um, from uh, had had just finished junior college, and so she came to work, and she she's a salesperson. She knows how to sell, and of course she was 20 years old with beautiful skin. So uh, we were selling a lot of skincare products and cosmetics and that was actually much more profitable than the prescriptions. Yeah, and I think I kind of see that trend with um, independent pharmacies just even now uh, because they, they can't just survive off the independent pharmacy just as the pharmacy. There's always something else that is added like skincare products is one of them, like you said. Yeah, or, GME. is another. Yeah, and then contracts with certain um, providers as well. You know, there's always something and extra. Com- and I started compounding. I started mm-hmm. compounding on a very... Um, Limited basis. I was making progesterone suppositories and inositol solutions and um, creams for, for some of the doctors in the building. Uh, uh, and then I sold in 1994. So I had the store for about 20 years. Wow, that, that's a long time to have a store, actually. Yeah, and then I uh, started. I worked for uh, went to work for Steve Feldman, who owned California Pharmacy. He was actually, I think, the first pharmacist in Orange County to compound, mm-hmm. and his business was really beginning to blossom so he tra- I, he sent me to PCCA to be trained and so um, I worked for him um, for about two years and then one of his friends needed a pharmacist and um, I interviewed with him and went to work and ran his pharmacy for another 10 years so uh, until 2006 so uh, that's where I got my compounding experience wow that's a that's a lot of years compounding did you see a lot of changes during that time Yes, because when I first, you know, the, when I was doing, right after I sold my pharmacy, the compounding pharmacies that were compounding, I mean, some of them were just compounding on a ply board board. It wasn't even necessarily clean. You know, I mean, you know, it didn't, but actually, it may have been clean, but it wasn't pristine at all. Mm-hmm. And and there was no, 
there weren't any rules and regulations. Now with Steve, he was he was kind of the innovator in Orange County, and he got about four or five of us together to establish rules and regulations for compounding, mm-hmm. policy, basically policies and procedures. There was about four of us, and we we, we met together or we met over the phone, and uh, he, and his work established uh, the stake in CPHA for compounding. Oh wow! Because there was no there was nothing. Until that time, it was so early in it, you know, the, and at that time, you know, when Steve started, he was the first one. And, you know, within 10 years, there was probably 15 or 20 that I was aware of. Um, and now there's a whole lot more. But um, the regulations were nothing like they are now. Yeah, the regulations have gotten a lot more strict um, nowadays because of a lot of issues in recent news. Yeah, well, that, that, that uh, the, the New England compounding pharmacy fiasco was what I think finally made the boards of pharmacy wake up and decide that they had to be more stringent in their rules. Yeah, definitely. So, I remember uh, I remember when that happened and it affected my workplace immediately when I was in, uh, yeah, back I, in Ventura. And down south in Florida, some, some very expensive racehorses died due to some faulty compounding. So, oh, gosh. And that all happened right about the same time. So mm-hmm. um, that made a big difference. So, so now it's much more expensive to start because of the uh, regulations for building rooms, which are very similar to clean rooms, mm-hmm. and then my, my understanding now that uh, is the new regulations, or at least in California, will have to be uh, USP 100. So it'll be even it'll more, a little bit more stringent yet. Yeah. So I guess that goes on to the next question about, um, let's say there are students out there that are interested in when they graduate to open a compounding pharmacy, or if you know someone that's in the pharmacy practice right now that's a pharmacist and they want to get into uh, compounding. Um, do you have any advice for them? Well, I think, first of all, I think you have to look at your patient population because compounding is no longer covered by your insurance. Oh, okay. And because, because what, it's more and more expensive to set up for compounding. You have, if in California, you have to have two separate rooms with two separate hoods, two separate sets of equipment, and two separate sets of ingredients. The NIOSH list and anything else that the pharmacist in charge deems to be hazardous has to be compounded and handled separately from a non-hazardous drug. Mm-hmm. So unless you're specializing very closely to only one group of drugs, you have to have two rooms. So the cost for that, that means two hoods, you have to have venting to the outside in the hazardous room, and probably should do it for both rooms anyway, just in case. Uh, the people, the owners that I talked to have spent somewhere between $125,000 and $200,000. Oh, wow. That's quite a lot. So... So if you're looking at a patient population, you have to look at a patient population who can afford to pay for this. Drugs, you may be able to dispense something for as little as $50, but more than likely, if you're going to do one only, it's going to cost a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. So if you have, if you're doing um, hormone replacement therapy and you have a doctor who, um, who you have a relationship with, then you can have, you know, you can, you can make bulk drugs. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing one at a time, it's very labor intensive and the cost is set up is expensive. So I think it's going to, I think some of the uh, pharmacies that were doing 10 or less a day are probably out of the picture now. They just, you know, mm-hmm. spend the money because there's not enough coming back in. Yeah. So, so I think, I think it's going to do things it will do. It'll improve the quality, I think, of the compounding medications, but it'll also diminish the accessibility to compounding. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I guess you said that you were, uh, you got certified at PCCA. 
Can you talk a little yeah. bit more about that, like how your training was, and maybe if someone had you know interest in that? Well, there were two things the PCCA offered. One was the physical education, going into a lab that they had there in, in Texas, uh, there in um, Houston, and what they they the class maybe has twenty people in it. They they're all set up. Everybody has their own scale and everybody uh, balance, and everybody has all their their own equipment. And they show you, you know, tell you how to dress and you know what kind of a cover you have, and, and they, you know, you're wearing uh, gloves and that sort of thing. And they, there's somebody teaching you how to do the basics, how to make, how to use the capsule machine, how to, how to make suppositories and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But even more valuable is the networking for when you go to one of these weekend seminars that they have, learning from other people what they're how they were successful. Mm-hmm. That's very, very important. And, and and also getting to know them so that you can call them if you need help or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then PCCA, although it's expensive to join and there's a membership price to do it, they, they do offer a lot of support. If you have a brand new formula and it's not available online and you're making it for only one patient, never made it before, they have chemists, PhDs, pharmacists with experience available to you to guide you and and you know and teach you how to make those 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 uh, formulas those prescription mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, it's not it's not inexpensive but mm-hmm. in the long run if you're going to do any volume it's almost i think invaluable to have a membership with them yeah i'm actually looking at their website it says that they have 9500 formulations available for their membership and it looks like over 4000 people are in their membership so that's that's quite substantial yeah, and they've been there. They've been around since I think maybe the late seventies, early thir- early eighties. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I I I went to see them in nineteen ninety five. It's like sold my pharmacy in ninety four. So, I see. Uh, and they were well established then. So they've been around for a while. All right. So is uh, let's say if someone wanted to ask more questions from you, wanted to see your perspective, is there a way that they can reach you, possibly by email? They can reach my email, and my I can give I give you my phone number. I, I'd rather by email because I know who's calling. You know how it is today on your cell phone. You get all these calls, but you don't know what they are. So a lot of times I won't pick up. So it's a uh, email is lagunasil l a g u n a s y l at gmail dot com. All right, great. So I'll put that in the episode notes for this for the listeners. They can scroll through and find that link. But um, to be respectful of your time, I'd like to thank you again for taking some time out of your busy day. Uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, our listeners learned a lot from you. All right. Thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate it. So if you guys like this episode, uh, please subscribe to our podcast to get notified of future episodes. And for more information about OCPHA, you can find us on OCPHA.org or on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, But until next time, OCPHA signing off, reminding you to get determined, get inspired. 